A up, how's it going? It's Matt and you're listening to episode 32 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast. It's my show where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. So thanks for listening to this one and I hope you enjoy it. So first I just want to say, um, wow, what an amazing response to episode 31 with Tim Layton Boyce and Dan Adams of uh, Read and Destroy. Definitely the episode that's had the most uh, feedback, shares and uh, incoming messages to me from around the world, really. Really brilliant response. And I just want to say thanks to everybody who listened to it, enjoyed it, shared it, contacted me to let me know how much they enjoyed it. And overall, just really helped me get Tim's story out there, which is the whole point, really. So I think I picked up quite a few new listeners off the back of that one. If you are a new listener and uh, you've decided to stick around, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. I mean, the idea is really the individual and their story, not the sports. So I hope you can find um, other episodes that you're into in the back catalogue and I hope you can enjoy this one. My guest today is a very dear and old friend of mine, the great uh, James Stentiford. So for over two decades, James has been a towering presence in the UK and European snowboarding scene. Yeah, there's his uh, ride in itself and career as a professional, which is definitely one of the grandest in the UK and saw him make a name for himself as one of our most respected and versatile uh, snowboard pros. But perhaps more importantly, is James' approach to life and snowboarding and the influence that this has had on perhaps an entire generation of UK snowboarders. And I would definitely include myself in that. It's not for nothing that his close friends have long called him the silverback. As you'll hear during this conversation, James Stentiford is an extremely single-minded and driven individual with a very keenly developed sense of self and what can at times appear an almost pathological desire to follow the lifestyle that makes him happy. In this case, that's meant creating a life for himself that's allowed him to go snowboard and, and ride as much powder as possible, which is what he's still doing today in his mid-40s. Now, as you might be gathering, I've known James for a very long time. But the funny thing is, when I first met him back in the day, which was probably in the early to mid-90s, it did take me a little while to get him. I think like a lot of people, I was basically intimidated by how self-possessed and self-aware he, he was and how obviously determined he was to pursue his own path and how comfortable in his own skin he was doing that. But like everybody else, I soon succumbed to the hypnotic and uh, charismatic influence of the pig. That's another of his nicknames, perhaps a homage to that legendary stubbornness. And yeah, I've long counted, his, counted him as one of my closest friends and, uh, and influences in snowboarding, really. So given all that background, understandably, I was pretty keen to speak to James for this. And we first had a crack, as uh, regular listeners will know, in Devon back in September 2017. I headed down to Croyd. We had a good surf, headed to a friend's to do the interview, which turned out really well. And then somehow I managed to lose the interview, which, um, yeah, was, I think I've mentioned before, an experience a little like the time I stayed up all night writing an essay at uni, placed the last full stop and watched my computer crash and lost the whole thing. Not good, basically. Anyway, James was pretty cool about the whole thing. So for take two, I headed to Chamonix in January 2018, where I'd actually been booked onto one of his uh, courses to write a story for a UK newspaper for a while. So we decided that it made sense to try and do the interview at the end of that trip, which is exactly how it panned out. So on my last day in Chamonix, we headed to a cafe to roll the tape for a second time, both knackered, but pretty uh, pretty happy after three amazing days riding powder in one of the best starts to a season in 20 odd years. And what followed was a really enjoyable free-flowing chat with somebody who's got a unique perspective on snowboarding, action sports and life generally, garnered over two plus decades during which James has basically tried to answer one question as honestly as possible. What makes me happy? I think that's fair to say. When he was in his early 20s and making the decision to drop out of university, the answer to that was go snowboarding. And now he's in his mid-40s, the answer to that is still go snowboarding. And during that intervening time, James has made bold life choices and sacrifices that have enabled him to achieve that goal. As you'll hear... In typical James fashion, it's backed up by some pitiless honesty and self-analysis and is the reason, hopefully, why you'll understand why his friends and European snowboarding generally have long found him to be such an inspirational figure. 
And as such, I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of this episode. So yeah, a brilliant chat with somebody I'm proud to consider a close friend. And as I say, a big influence on my own life. So here it is, my thank you snowboarding chat, the phrase du jour this season, it would appear, with the great James Stentiford. Enjoy. Forty-six years old. Forty-six years old. Wow. Young. So forty-six years young. Forty-six years young. Um, so, James, how did you feel about having to do this again? Uh, yeah, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. You know, it's whatever, isn't it? Yeah. After well, we did the last one after we'd been surfing in Croy, didn't we? Yeah. And, we, and we're going to do this one after we've had three very good days in uh, in Chamonix. So, uh, yeah, what have we been doing? Maybe you could explain that to, to kick it off. Um, well, uh, you guys, or Matt, you and a couple of uh, good friends have been out on a course, uh, a splitboard intro course, which, um, yeah, with these challenging conditions, became more of a powder riding fest. I mean, which is no bad thing, obviously. Yeah, because uh, we should say, I'm sure everybody listening to this is has gathered but it is the what would you reckon the best winter in how long would you say you've got a good uh, you know good overview of these things uh it's definitely the best probably the best start to a winter i guess since 95 96 maybe i mean you have periods during a winter you know we've had periods during a winter for a month or a month and a half where the snow's been you know, amazing, and it hasn't stopped snowing. But I can't remember. Even the '99 winter wasn't as consistent as '94, '95. That was just. It was pretty much like this from January till till start of April. Right. So you'll go. You'll point it even back to that one then, because everyone else is saying like '99, aren't they? Yeah. Well, '99 wasn't. It was. We had a period of consistent non-stop snowing and 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 too much snow but in 94 95 was the longest consistent period of of just non-stop snow that i've i mean i might were you in chamonix then yeah that was that was my second winter right uh and myself and justin allison and johnny barr and matt lowbridge we just we just rode the trees every single day. Right. It seemed like for, I mean, it was like this, nothing was open for right. weeks on end. Uh, and we, we just, I just remember riding powder from January until start of April. Right. Okay. Do you look back and cringe? Did you have, did you do all the, the classics? Like didn't have any backcountry awareness? Well, I think. Or were you always quite on, on with that? No, no, not at all. I mean, I've done ridiculously stupid stuff and got away with it. But but during that period, that was kind of before the free ride period, we were all freestylers, you know, so we literally would huck ourselves off cat tracks um, and we'd build little, you know, platforms all the way down a Lavanche bowl just so that we could spin off stuff. We right. basically... The way we'd ride, you know, you'd probably cringe the way we rode. It, you know, we'd literally go from hit to hit, and then we'd all stop. Everyone would do the, try their trick. You know, half the time you'd land, half the time you'd eat shit. But it was a great, it was great training because everything was into powder. Yeah. So, I mean, I literally, I couldn't land anything in powder. I right. Know, for the first month, I probably just fell on my face every single time. But within within a month or two, because it was so consistent. You know, suddenly I, I could actually do switch backside fives into powder for for, for a while. Wow! But yeah, Justin Allison was basically my my mentor because he was well, he was the first ever proper professional snowboarder in the UK. So I literally latched onto him and yeah, and just learned from him. Yeah, because he was getting shots in Transworld, wasn't he? And I remember back then, sort of ninety four, ninety five, wasn't he? Really. What, was it around then that he was sort of getting that international coverage, Justin? Yeah. Well, Justin is, he's an amazing character. You know, if he wants something... He's a bit of an unsung hero yeah, of yeah. UK snowboarding, I think, isn't he? Really? Uh, yeah, absolutely. He was before his time. He was, he knew what he wanted. He was incredibly professional. 
Um, I learned so much from him, you know, riding wise, how to conduct yourself business wise. Right. Um, yeah, he, he's probably one of the best professional snowboarders the UK has ever had, yet most people, you know, don't know about him because he was so before his time. I mean, he, he filmed with Jamie Mossberg and I, I filmed, I latched on and, and got to film with Jamie Mossberg. And that was here, wasn't it? That was, that was here. That was in New Zealand. Right. You know, it was, it was all over the place. Wow. Um, you know, we got to hang out with Jamie Mossberg and Wes Makepeace and all these American pros, which at the time, you know, I didn't even really think about. I was just along for the ride going, right. hey, this is fun. We're snowboarding. We're getting filmed. Um, yeah, and Justin, you know, he had big parts in American movies. Yeah, um, yeah, I'll, I should link to a couple because he, yeah. is, he is. Yeah, right. and we went to New Zealand uh, and we hung out with Nicholas Droze. Right. Became really good friends with him and filmed with him. You know, and at the time I didn't really think about it. I was just going, this, this is the best thing ever I'm, yeah i'm right i'm snowboarding with all these guys just having a good time and i actually had a so how old would you been at uh, this point 94 i'm gonna have to think 24 24, yeah, 24. and is, is this when you were sort of working out w what i'm gonna do with this yeah like, I, well i, I never or were really just, or were you nah, just thinking like i'm going snowboarding that's I, that i'm 24 i didn't really think about it at all i i just i i, I was at university uh, and I didn't enjoy it. Uh, I'd done a season in 91 and been exposed to professional snowboarding for the first time, seeing Terrier, Craig Kelly uh, and Jeff Brushy basically filming the first Burton video in Garmisch. And that kind of just opened, opened my mind to what was possible. And I was literally like, that's what I want to do. I just want to go snowboarding. Um, and I remember Ben White, who was my, my first sponsor, saying... You know, after being in Avoriaz for the British champs, and I'd literally just got drunk and smoked loads of weed and not really done anything. Right. And, Which uh, is kind of hilarious thinking about <laughs> you doing that. But Yeah. And um, he basically said to me, yeah, I think one day you're going to earn money out of snowboarding. You know, you're probably not going to make enough to retire, but you'll make a living. And I just laughed at him. I just, I just thought that was absolutely ludicrous. Right. But he's uh, another sort of visionary of the UK team, wasn't he, Ben White? In ben it, White's it. another unsung hero. Yeah. He, he basically came up with border cross before border cross was invented. He wanted to have that in the British Championships because he came from motocross. Right. Um, motorbiking. He was into motorbikes and did motocross. So he's way, he was way before his time as well. And another unsung hero because he... he he saw the importance of of riders and looking after them and helping them out. And he he actually helped, well, he helped me get hooked up with LibTech in the US. He helped Justin Allison with Wave Rave and Level Gloves. You know, he was he was he was an amazing guy. And I I owe a massive amount of where I am today. Well, to both those guys, really. Yeah, because one of the interesting things that came out of when I interviewed Pete Halicar was Ben's involvement with Unabomber, which I just had no idea about. You know, he was pretty much the the business brains and the money behind that, really, at least at the beginning, by the sounds of it. So you so you had these couple of, you know, mentor figures, if you like, all these experiences. Was this the point at which you sort of decided to concentrate fully on riding and 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 looking after yourself in a way that would maximize your ability to to ride, whether it's surfing or snowboarding? Because I remember reading your White Lines interview in, I think it was like second issue maybe, um, which is about when I started working for White Lines. And you were quite straight edge and hard line in that. And you were very much like, no, I've, you know, I've packed it in because I'm going to focus. So was that, was that all around this time that you started to have that realisation? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it was. I think it, it, I've always been interested in, in health and, and well-being think i'll probably inherit it from my mother right but um it just struck me at the time i remember thinking it was a really it's pretty mature decision considering what everyone else was doing well i think i've always even when i was a little kid i think i've basically always never followed the crowd i always wanted to do my own thing you know if a load of people are doing one thing i'll probably go now nah, i'm going to do something else so i think it's maybe a character trait um but I, i've always been obsessed with sport um, you know, from a very young age. I remember probably when I was 13, 14, my, my cousin asking me whether I had a girlfriend and I was like, why would I want a girlfriend? I'm just, I like doing sports. So, you know, that was my absolute obsession. And, you know, I'm still like that. I, I, so any sport? Any, any sport. 
Um, obviously now it's more surfing, skateboarding, snowboarding. Um, but I just, I just, I guess I had that realization that I wanted to maximize my enjoyment of these sports and going out and getting drunk and not eating healthily just didn't make me feel good and didn't make me feel like I wanted to do those things. So I think it was just, you know, it was kind of maybe partly wanting to be different to everyone else, but also partly thinking this is what I love. So this is, you know, I want to do this for as long as I can to the highest level I can do. I mean, I think it, I, I uh, think Neil McNabb actually gave me this quote that there'd be nothing worse than not being able to do the things you want to physically because of because of your lack of motivation to keep yourself healthy. Yeah. Um, I think that 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 would be my one and only regret in life if that that happened. So I think I, I realised early on that I just needed to stay healthy and strong if I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And did that ever put you in an awkward position? Because that was a very like separate stance from everybody else. Did, or, or, did, or was that just like, oh, well, that's James. That's what he's kind of doing. Oh, no, not at all. You know, you know what it was like, the snowboard scene back then. It was all about partying, getting absolutely smashed and then going snowboarding the next day. It was kind of, I guess it was that anti-establishment you know, we're different, we don't want to fit in with anyone, you know, we're punk rock. Um, yeah, there's loads of pressure, you know, there always is, isn't there? But yeah. I, I definitely don't give in to pressure. No. It didn't bother me at all. You know, I, I think I've always been reasonably confident of who I am and um, what I stand for, and, you know, and no one's going to change my mind. Yeah, so that's interesting. So that's always a trait that you've had because I think when when I was speaking to some of our mutual friends about doing this interview that was definitely the most popular question you know where does that drive that kind of single-mindedness you know that knowing yourself which which you clearly have to a very well-developed degree is that that's always been there has it since you were a kid yeah yeah I think it's a character trait um I don't know who I get it from maybe my mum maybe my dad I don't know but I've always yeah, I've always, I guess, had a feeling of, or, or known what I want, you know. Right. I, I mean, you know what it's like. Life is, especially in the modern world with social media, it's very easy for people to get distracted and think, oh, yeah, that's what I need in my life. That's going to make me happy. But I think I've always, you know, had a sense of what makes me happy uh, uh, and what I need in my life, which I think, you know, I'm very lucky. I don't think that's, that that's maybe you know I haven't really worked on that that's always naturally been there obviously you know like everyone else you have confused and tough times yeah. where you're like what am I doing where you question everything but you know I've, I've definitely had a lot of crossroads in my life where I've made decisions that maybe most other people wouldn't have made um, you know like being offered the sports marketing manager of, of DC um, at the end of my career um, and I didn't think very long about it. <laughs> I basically went, mm, six months in an office, I'll tell everyone to fuck off and then I'll probably go snowboarding again. So I think it's just luck of character and um, yeah. yeah, it's just one of those, th those traits that um, I think I'm maybe fortunate to have inherited off family. Has it changed then, what you need? You said you know, you've always had a, a clearly defined idea about what you need. Is that, is that, how's that changed over the years? Um, I don't think it's changed that much. Um, you know, I've never, I've never been that motivated about m uh, to, to, to earn money. You know, uh, you need a basic amount of money to survive. I think I've always been way more focused on what enjoyment I can get out of what I need. You know, snowboarding, be it snowboarding, surfing, time with the family. Um, I'm fortunate enough, you know, to work hard in the winter and only work two days or three days a week in the summer and spend lots of time with my son, which, you know, it's incredibly special when they're young as well. Um, I guess it's slightly changed having a family. You know, you've, you need a bit of security. But, you know, I'm still the same. I still just want to go snowboarding, skateboarding, surfing and hang out with my family and have those experiences. I think, you know, there were, yeah, there's all these corny cliches, you know, especially with social media you know, live life to the max and all, you know, all hashtag those, blessed. Yeah, hashtag blessed, <laughs> you know, there's all that. Every damn day. But despite that, I think, you know, a lot of people are confused about what they need out of life. I just think it makes it worse. 
it yeah, so exactly. makes it worse yeah. because because like you said there's so many conflicting messages and and also like essentially like contrived situations that you're invited to compare yourself to yeah which aren't real really but it's really difficult to remember that yeah uh, the human brain is so fickle yeah you know i experience it myself you know i, I get into situations and go oh yeah i remember last time i didn't like that and here i am again so yeah it's, it's really i think it's really difficult you know we're all going through the same shit the same emotions and um, yeah, it's hard to really, really know yourself and make the right decisions. It's easily, especially with media and the amount of, you know, amount of stuff that's in your face these days, it's easy to get distracted from what's important, which is experience is with good friends and family. That's the most important thing, like the last three days that we've had together, that, that kind of thing, that's what I live for, you know? Getting yeah. people stoked on snowboarding and sharing these experiences in nature. Yeah, no, it was definitely not a bad way to open the account for this season definitely yeah. so can it be a challenge to to balance that with with having a young family yeah it's a constant challenge you know because i get distracted as well you know i think about zeph and and you know what the world's going to be in the future for him and i want him to be secure so yeah it's a constant challenge have you um, had to compromise and uh, luckily not really um you know i've been lucky enough to to have a great snowboarding career and then from there into team management for DC and Quicksilver and for there, from there into my current business of taking people snowboarding. Um, yeah, I think I've been incredibly fortunate or maybe I've been lucky to make good decisions. Um, but I still question it, you know, I still question what I'm doing now and then. Yeah. But then you have three days like this with you guys and I think I'm the luckiest guy in the world because you know hashtag blessed <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna creep onto one of your instagram posts isn't never it? ever 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 <laughs> can, if, when it does that's when i shut my account yeah down. that'll be when i'll be texting friends a little anxiously have you seen what james has written <laughs> and how about with the family though because obviously your your family are in england and you're spending a lot of time on the road and you know it's a bit of a classic conundrum for people isn't it when they have a family especially in the in your line of work which involves travel is that has that been a difficult thing to to line up so you can you know maintain both to the level that, you, that you're talking about so you can get this balance yeah I mean, it's it's gonna get tougher because zef is five and he's at school um and i think you know while, while he's in the first few years uh it's not going to be difficult for him to have time out of school um so yeah we it's we're only apart for a couple of weeks but it's incredibly hard and i think it's going to get harder as he becomes more aware and he becomes older um so you know just gonna have to keep it keep it fluid and you know see what happens you know i w wouldn't hesitate to do less of what i'm doing if it means that you know he, he's he's feels secure and happy that's the most important thing to me um you know obviously going snowboarding and having a good time is great but yeah him being feeling secure and happy is really important to me um, which might mean compromise in the future might mean cutting down the amount of weeks that I do but I don't think it's you know ever going to stop me I, I luckily have probably the most most understanding partner in the world that's why we've been together for 25 years I think Penny deserves a, a shout out a massive <laughs> shout out <laughs> well I mean it leads me nicely to the question I really wanted to ask you because the flip side of of having this like focus drive whatever you want to call it is that it can be interpreted as extreme selfishness really um is that something that you've been accused of for pursuing this life so single-mindedly over the years yeah definitely i think any you know any anyone who's a professional sports person or has been a professional sports person um is inherently selfish to to an extent yeah, because you're pursuing what you want to do um, and often at the cost of other people. You know, I'm sure every athlete would, you know, imagine Mo Farah goes off to America for months and yeah. months off end. He's got a young family. So, uh, yeah, you're inherently selfish because you have this focus of what you want to achieve. Um, I think in, in my early earlier years, I was incredibly selfish and, you know, I, I apologise to Penny now. <laughs> um <laughs> I think I've become better at compromising with age. I, I hope I have. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, my friends at home, surfing is a classic. 
you know, surfing is inherently selfish. You know, we, we've, I've got lots of friends in Devon. We've all got young families. And we're all absolutely addicted to surfing. And when the surf's on, everyone will do anything <laughs> to get out of their family duties and have a couple of hours surfing. Is that why you called... You, you, I've heard you say it a few times, like, that North Devon, the graveyard of ambition. I've heard you use that phrase. Yeah, yeah, I, you know... Uh, but, you know, that's your definition of success, isn't it? The ability to be able to... I think, I think the, the phrase, the, the graveyard of ambition, ambition as in to be maybe in a conventional way successful, as in have a big house. The trappings. Yeah, you know, have a fancy car yeah. and, ha you know, have a big salary that, that you can show off. So or, con know. conventional ambition. Yeah, conventional say. ambition. It's, it's, an ambi it's still ambition. It's not like we sit, I sit around on my ass when I'm at home and do nothing. I think a lot of people listen to this and, you know, one of the things that's been coming through from this and interviewing different people is people would love to have that single-mindedness and... and you know, be able to, to rig their lives so they can pursue the things that they love. It's not that common, is it, really? I don't think. Well, I think it, I think it takes, um, you know, it takes bold decisions. It takes, it takes balls, in a way, to, to, you know, we are sheep, we're naturally sheep, and to go, no, you know, to stand up and say, no, I'm not doing this, I want to do something else. I think there's, you know, it's partly balls and it's partly having a mentor or someone... To show you the way. Who shows you the way, yeah. you know. It, I think in any career of any sports person, they'll, you know, they'll have, they'll have a mentor or someone who inspired them. There's always someone, you know, older than you, wiser than you, who's, yeah. who's given you that spark. You know, I mean, so Regis died recently in the amount of black players. That, yeah, it was really you know, moving that, that wasn't that it? That was really, really moving. Yeah. And you, you suddenly realise, you know, because I was a young kid in the 70s. Yeah. And I didn't realise that. But to them, it gave them gave them hope. Yeah, it yeah. gave them an inspiration. And, and I think every athlete will point to someone who, who gave them that spark. But it's just whether you can, you know, you've got the balls to pursue it. So presumably when you were younger, and I'm talking, let's just say, before you discovered skateboarding and snowboarding, you were into football, what cricket, yeah, like the, the conventional. Well, no, all, all, all sports. Yeah, I, I, I was into. So you've always been a sport, Billy. Oh God, yeah, I've yeah. loved sport. You know, <laughs> it's been my religion. I guess I would call it my religion since since I was really young. My dad was really sporty. Right. Uh, his grandparents were really sporty. Um, you know, I've been obsessed with football, rugby, cricket, hockey, right? Anything really. I remember moving back from Germany at the age of fourteen. And uh, first sports lesson was rugby. Um, and I was like, wow, I can hit people and run <laughs> with the ball. And the sports teacher went to me, are you sure you've never played rugby before? And I was like, yeah, no. Do you want to play in the school team next week? Really? You know, it was, it, I just, you know, I soaked up any sport that I could. Right. Um, Where did that come from then? I guess it came from my father, you know, he, right. was, he was a rugby player, he, his grandparents played tennis, he was an avid tennis player, you know, my sister, um, my, my sister, you know, became sportier as she got older, she runs marathons and um, cycles and, and does stuff like that, um, but we're all... We're obsessed with BBC Sport. I mean, Penny refers to it all the time. If she sees the yellow band at the top, right. she literally starts giving me a hard time. Yeah, because that, that was what always sort of constantly surprised me about you. You do know, you're a geek as well. You know a lot about a lot of different sports. You can chat sport, definitely. Oh, yeah. um, and also, like, when we've played football together, I said this in the last time we chatted, but I was a bit like, Jesus Christ, he's good at that as well. Like, <laughs> can't even give me that. Well, better, than, better than me at football as well. Like, is it, so you've always just had this like physical talent, if you like, because you do. You know, you are. You know, sport Billy is the word. Really, you tend to be good at a lot. I mean, I remember we did one season in down the valley here, where we all lived around the corner from each yeah. other, and you were, we we spent the, the spring playing hacky sack, and you were the best at that as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that you know. Whether it's uh, nature or nurture, my brain is I'm physically obviously coordinated and I think I've got a good physique f for sport. You can translate. And I think my brain, my brain, I love analysing sport. Yeah. I love analysing physical, um, be it, you know, be it hacky sack, be it, um, uh, what's the, when they put the, any physical Limbo. activity. <laughs> any physical activity. I, I really love to analyse it, see someone do it, and then try and do it myself. Yeah, you've I've, got that thing that all good athletes have, which is that ability to yeah to translate. 
a mental image into physical outcome, which yeah. is, as we saw from my attempts at skiing <laughs> over the last few days, you know, like not something that comes easy, easily to everybody, but that's always come really easily to you. So you th- I guess the other thing we discussed when we when I fought the last interview was the nature and nurture thing as well. Yeah. And I remember you saying you don't really believe in, in nurture. You weren't... I, I, no, I think it, it's... You well, didn't obviously... Really, you, didn't obviously really buy, you didn't buy the 10,000 hours thing, did you? No, you know? I don't buy that at all. I, th- I think, you know, from personally, from being a team manager, I think maybe that is a, a talent. If you've got that yourself, I can definitely look at people and go, yeah, they've they've got natural talent. They can naturally... You know, they're physically they can work out how to do something and do do it. You know, you see that with skateboarders. Yeah. You you know, I've seen it in snowboarding. You know, I've seen people who have worked really damn hard um, to get where they are, but have some physical talent. And then I've seen people. The who, Gary Neville pro- exactly, protocol. The, the John O'Verity. You know, <laughs> he, he, he is pure determination. Zing. Pure determination. Um, and then there's, I guess, I, I, I don't know who who from our. Era well, I love the clip of John John snowboarding. Yeah, I mean that was a great example, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, someone who's just like, oh yeah, backflip bang. You know, yeah. Obviously- make, you know, it's people who make it look so easy that yeah. you you are almost lulled into thinking, oh, I can do that. That looks really easy. Yeah, but it's because they just have this this sixth sense or whatever it is they they can just turn their hand to everything so you would you would put people in two camps broadly if you like physically yeah definitely uh, definitely i think it's quite a depressing conclusion because there is this whole you know the ten thousand hours like put the practice in you'll you'll achieve greatness or you know you'll you'll, you'll gain ability yeah it's, it's definitely a, a quite a popular modern narrative isn't it well yeah you'll get so far of course you'll be you'll become really good at it but you won't be you won't be kelly slater you won't be john john you know in every sport there's those mavericks aren't there george best you know people like that who just they almost they don't have to train yeah they just they can just do it um, I think you get that that in every sport in skateboarding. Um, there's people who are luckily lucky enough to just be born with their brain. You know, everyone's brain is wired differently. Yeah. You know, you, you're not going to say Jimi Hendrix practiced for ten thousand hours and then became good. Mm. He was just an absolute maverick. You know, that once in, in once in a generation or once in ten generations that just just had that talent. So I firmly believe that. Yeah. Um, nurture will get you so far but talent is definitely natural so when you discovered board sports how old were you then um so i discovered skateboarding at the age of 16 so which is quite late really isn't it but um was that was that a light bulb moment yeah absolutely was that like okay this is what i've been actually looking for yeah absolutely it was you know i was getting a bit i was getting to teenage years i was getting disillusioned with team sports with football because I felt I enjoyed the sport but I felt like the people doing the sport weren't really my kind of people and I felt kind of different to to those guys so I was already questioning you know being part playing football playing rugby Um, and then I changed schools at the age of 16 to do my A-level somewhere else and met this guy uh, called Mark I saw him ollie up a curb and that was it. That was the eureka moment. I was right. like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. And I literally bought a skateboard, obsessively stood on my road, my cul-de-sac in, in Gloucester, hiding them, and ollie, you know, learnt to ollie, learnt yeah. to kickflip, learnt to skateboard. And it was, yeah, it was absolutely that eureka moment of finally I've discovered what, you know, what, what I need in my life. And what about snowboarding? When did that slot in uh snowboarding came a year afterwards um we used to go on skiing holidays you, you skied since you were a kid right yeah i lived in germany so skied since i was seven um then when i discovered skateboarding we were still going on skiing holidays every year with the family and their son matt was also a, a skateboarder and we saw someone snowboarding and that was it was just like wow we've got to so i badged we badgered our parents you know we've got to let us hire a snowboard we've got to hire a snowboard and they were you know, they were obviously very generous and hired us a snowboard. And that, that was it. We were, I remember we we weren't allowed to go on a chairlift. I had ski boots with soft bindings, but no high backs. What year is this, Sam? This was 1988 or 87. Right. Yeah, I can't quite remember. I'd have to ask my mum. She'll remember. But um, we literally got the bubble lift up, two of us, you know, strapped on, 
bounce down the slope for about 100 meters and then suddenly we were snowboarding yeah and we i got to the bottom then he got to the bottom we just looked at each other and we were just like oh my god <laughs> this is it um i think i think we both learned backside 360s in the first two days or so, something like that right but it was you know it was suddenly this it felt like we were part of a secret club right because right? there was hardly anyone on the mountain um, and we met these other two snowboarders and we built this little quarter pipe and we were doing hand plants and little backside airs. And it was just, it was, it was incredibly special, you know, at the age of 17 to feel like you're part of this little secret club or, or a sport that has just been invented was, um, yeah, it was, I was obsessed. So when did you, cause you said you went to university and you also did season. So you were on a, presumably on a bit of a conventional path if you like at this point the, the plan sounds like was school university which you did do yeah but you dropped out to go snowboarding yeah so um i had a year out I, you know i loved traveling from a, an early age and i had a year out after a levels you know i did well at, at school got uh, abc or something like that got into a really good course doing business and international uh, german and international business studies um there was pressure a bit of pressure from my parents you know, not in a, a horrible way, you've got to go to university, but just concern about my future, which, you know, is natural. And, you know, we've talked since and, you know, they've obviously said, yeah, you made the right decision dropping out. Um, but yeah, it, it's like any, anyone's life, late teens, early 20s, it's incredibly confusing and hard. Yeah. Um, because you're basically, you're still so young and immature and you're trying to decide what you want to do for the rest of your life. You know, Are you too young to make that decision? Yeah, you're way too young. <laughs> you know, I, I still, I'm 46 and I still think, what am I going to do when I'm older? You know? yeah. it, it's a question that I think should never end. Well, it's on the a, chairlift yesterday, you said, I don't really think I grew up till I was in my mid-30s. I think you said that. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, definitely, mid to late 30s, I think you really mature as a man anyway. I mean, men boys men we're very immature so you're basically you're basically you're basically blind in the world and you're just feeling your way along going you know and it's so easy to go down around down the wrong path and I did go down the wrong path you know I went to university I met uh, I met some you know lifelong friends but I got into drugs I got into drinking um but luckily you know I had that realization really quickly that that wasn't for me right um uh, I already questioned going to university before I went. I spent, you know, long hours looking into courses that involved sport because I was. But the problem was I was good at economics and I'd lived in Germany, so I was good at German. So you know, this course I think they had five thousand applicants in a hundred places. Right. So I got into that. So I felt the pressure. You know, naturally felt the pressure that that's what I should do. And from day one, really from day one at university, I knew that it wasn't for me. I remember sitting in that first lecture thinking, this is, I shouldn't be here. Um, but obviously pressure from parents and con conventions from society. I thought, well, I'll give this a go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was by the second year I knew that uh, I had to get out of it. Right. To, you know, all my friends, <laughs> Pete Turvey and Matt Lowbridge and Johnny Barr were living in Chamonix. I get I got phone calls about how amazing the powder was. Right. And um yeah, it was a difficult decision. I felt, you know, I felt a lot of pressure, but I knew I think I knew when I, as soon as I made that decision, I knew it was the right decision. So you came straight to Chamonix. So yeah, I, well basically I dropped out. Um I worked for 6 months, my only ever real job um in Mercury International Directory Inquiries. Jesus. Yeah. Answering um, the phone. That's on, on the phone lines, yeah, finding people international business numbers. Wow. I was the only person without a degree who got a, a job there. Um, and after six months, I said, I'm out of here, I'm, out of here. I'm going snowboarding. And they, no one, they were like, what? This is a brilliant job. You, why would you leave? This is, you know, you've got a great career here. <laughs> and, and I just laughed and went, I'm going snowboarding. Um, and then went and did my first season in Chamonix. Yeah. Wait, so say again when that was? That was ninety three, ninety four. So now you're on your twenty fifth winter. Yeah, twenty fifth. Not all in Chamonix. No, no. But you're definitely associated with Chamonix, really, in a lot of ways. Yeah, you spent the most yeah, time. Yeah, this here. is where I've spent my most time. Yeah. How's your relationship with this place changed then? Uh, well, obviously, twenty five years ago, it was very different. You know, you knew every snowboarder in the valley. It felt like we we're in this little club, and we were all here to 
jump off stuff, get, you know, have fun and and ride. And then obviously this place influenced what I became as a snowboarder. You know, we're all a product of our environment. Um, you naturally become a free rider here because of the peers, for the people you watch, the, the, the mountains, the ma- you know, you're not... If, if you live in Chamonix and you're a pure freestyler and you stay a pure freestyler, I reckon you're in the wrong place. Yeah, you, you, but I was naturally it'd be a shit place to be a freestyler. Yeah, exactly. I was naturally <laughs> influenced by this environment, and also obviously, I love being in the mountains, and I, yeah, you know, I, I love I love that kind of snowboarding. Um, so it made me into the snowboarder I was. I've got a very strange relationship with Chamonix now. It's a very love hate. Yeah, it's funny yesterday because we got to the tour, and it was shot. So there was only the bottom lift open. And we did one run, didn't we? Yeah. Did a little hike, did one run. Which was great. We had a which was really run. fun. Yeah. But then we went and did it again. And there were how many people do you think were on that? Like about oh, 60 people? 60 people. And yeah. like queuing, yeah. sharp elbows. Well, I pushing, don't know about queuing. Well, pushing, like pushing people out of the way. Yeah. And, and you were a bit like, oh, this is stressful, isn't it? You well, know? we got shamified. We did. That was the Chamonix demolition crew. Um yeah, I mean, Chamonix changed. It was very different back then. Well, like any place, this is, this is probably one of the most amazing mountain environments in the world with, with lift access. You know, you, every time I come back, even after 25 years, it blows me away. Um, but yeah, you get older, your priorities change. You know, my, as I said to you, my priority now is I'd rather just ride away from people, you know, even if I don't ride the best line. Um, I find I don't want to race to ride powder. I'm not, no. not going to enjoy it. And uh, I think it's got to a level where it's dangerous and someone will get killed because of it in, in Chamonix. Because that it, happens on very treacherous... I mean, where we were was just super mellow, wasn't it? But that yeah. happens on treacherous terrain, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, you know, I don't, when you're young and you've just turned up in town and you want to prove yourself... You know, you're looking up to all these incredible freeride skiers and snowboarders. You know, I, I get it. I absolutely get it. Um, you know, I made incredible mistakes in, in, in my past, you know. It's, it's really hard to turn up in the mountains and, you know, and be knowledgeable and make good decisions. You've almost, you know, everyone learns through their mistakes and hopefully, you, you know, you get away with those mistakes and, and take stock and, 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 you know, and learn. Um, but yeah, I've got a real love-hate relationship with, with Chamonix. I, I kind of come back and, and, and sometimes I'm in love with it because of the incredible mountains. And it, it's, it's, it's like a chess game, Chamonix. It's like a chess game. It's, it's, it's guessing where, where to go. Where's everyone going to go and where are we going to go? Yeah. And um, I mean, I'm, 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 in, I'm fully up on Chamonix at the minute. My last two trips, yeah. like, fully scored it. Yeah, and, it's yeah. Been... and it is heaven and hell. Yeah. You know, you can have a really incredibly bad experience in Chamonix because of the amount of people uh, and the powder gets trapped really quickly or you can have the most incredible experience because you, you're with the right person and they take you to the right place. And I would say, with my experience, 99% of the time I get it right and then 1% of the time it goes wrong and, and that's the way it is. But, but I'm really inspired again by Chamonix this, this trip. You know, I only spend two or three weeks here now because it's easier to take clients to quiet resorts where no one goes free riding and it's way more relaxing. You know, yeah. I'm not getting up at 7.30 in the morning and stressing about where I'm going to take you. You know, these last three days with you guys have been incredible fun. I've loved it. But every morning I've been on the internet kind of not stressing but you know trying to make an educated decision about where to go because most of the mountains have been shut yeah uh and that at times can be incredible hard and it wasn't till you know we got to La Contamine and we got round through that fog to the back of the tour where I went yeah it was the right decision yeah no that was great so what advice would you give to somebody listening to this who likes the idea of it but is going to come for a week or something like how would you make the most of it of Chamonix, um, I would definitely, definitely hire and you know someone go riding with someone who knows the place, or hire someone you know who is an experienced snowboarder, a guide or an instructor um, to show you around. And I think the, the most English crews or English snowboarders, skiers, whatever, are, are switched on to that, and and they know the value of of, of someone being someone experienced. Because you could come to Chamonix and go snowboarding and and just be like, oh man, this place is horrendous. You know, if you go to the wrong place, you'll be confronted by tracked out steep icy moguls. 
But if you know the little secret spots and go with the right people, you'll have the best time ever. Yeah. So you don't, like you say, you don't just do courses in Sham. You, you go to Iceland. Yeah. You Norway. Do, Austria as well, do you? Austria. Yeah. Sanfoir. Sanfoir. Um, Switzerland's in Argument. I, I basically look... Well, I say I look. I, it's basically through through having a network of friends right. that have built up over the years who I've been riding with. Yeah. Um, like Eric Themmel, who lives in Gargellan, um, a guy called Charlie, who lives in Zinagrement. I, You know, you get tips. You get tips. Yeah. You hear, you know, on the grapevine, oh, yeah, this spot's great for free riding and no one around. So um there's Lenza Heider in Switzerland and Courchevel. You know, there's there's loads of resorts i mean if you think about the amount of resorts in europe and and how incredible the mountains are and everybody goes to the same place everyone goes to the same place so i'm going to give my secret away here (laughs) um basically i look for smaller resorts that are close to big popular resorts yeah like lenza hyder like lenza hyder um close to larks yeah um close to crans montana and zermatt um, Gargellen, close to St. Anton and Lech. Um, so incredible terrain, but a lot less people around. And it's it's just, if there's if the snow's... You want to, you know, people are paying for a really good experience. They want an adventure and be able to go home and show their friends photos and what a great time they had. And it's much easier for me to give them that if I'm in somewhere quiet where you give yourself the best chances to get good snow. So where, where else have you got on the horizon? Because obviously you've done a lot of traveling over the years. We've done a few trips together over the years to some, you know, out-of-the-way places. Where, have you got anywhere else you'd really like to ride? Yeah, loads of places. I'd like to go to Kamchatka. I'm actually looking into doing a, a trip there um, maybe next year. I want to go back to Japan because everyone's going to Japan. Yeah, seems that way. Yeah, so I'd like to go back there before it gets too rinsed. Um, I'd like to go to Svalbard. Um, I'd like to go to Georgia. I really love the Eastern Bloc countries because, you know, if, if you going on trips to North America, you're basically you're not going there for the cultural experience. You're going there for the powder. So if then maybe the snow isn't as good as you think it's going to be, you know, it can be. You know, expectations for me are the worst thing. Yeah. Low expectations generally you get surprised, but um, you go to Eastern Europe you're basically going to have an incredible cultural experience, if, even if the snow isn't amazing. Yeah. Um, and I think that takes the pressure slightly off and you're going for an experience. You're not just, you know, it's not, if you go to Pipeline or you go to Hawaii, you're going basically for the waves, aren't you? Yeah. Whereas, say, you go to Iceland to go surfing, you're, you're going to have a real interesting experience. And those are the kind of trips... I've got the fondest memories of, you know, like our trip to Russia, yeah. going to Kyrgyzstan, you know, going to Macedonia, cat skiing. Yeah. Those are the memories. Well, that sounds pretty epic. Yeah, those are the memories that really stick out because it wasn't just about the snowboarding, it was about the whole experience. Well, ski resorts, I mean, let's be honest, once you're on a run, you could be anywhere in the world. I mean, they're little islands for rich people, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Essentially, they don't, they don't represent a, a culture, do they, really? So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I've always been a big fan of doing those kind of out the way trips because like you say you just get a different experience don't you so with Stentiford snowboarding your your current venture was that always the master plan or was that slightly panic driven by uh by you know the because you 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 had to face what you know we talked about professional athletes and obviously you had to face the classic dilemma yeah what do I do next and you had a good run let's be honest oh I had an incredible run in fact I think I think I might have been the oldest professional snowboarder at one point, maybe. Yeah, you, in, definitely you, in the UK. You definitely got your got your value. Well, I just, I just, you know, I just knew that it was. I was on the best, you know, the, the, onto the best thing in the world, getting paid to hang out and go snowboarding. So I didn't want that to run out. I mean, I don't think I, cl- I didn't. I, I knew that I wasn't going to cling on desperately until the bitter end. But while I felt like I was making a contribution and and I was at the level, yeah, I was going to continue as long as I could. Um, and then I fell into team management with Quicksilver and DC. Um, but then the financial crash in two thousand and eight. I had. I knew. I knew the end was coming. Um, so I made a plan, luckily. I was, right. had the foresight. So you always see, had a bit of a... Yeah, yeah. I think, I think a lot of people got caught out. 
um, you know, they thought they were on something for life, uh, a career for life. But I knew, I knew the end was coming, the good times were over, um, and it was time to come up with a plan. And I've got Neil McNabb to thank, really, right. for, my, for my career now, because... I mean, he was the he was the pioneer of yeah, of, this, really, of this kind of company. He really was, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, yeah, I saw what he was doing. I, I, I mean, I talked about it a lot um, before I ended my career to to friends like John O and Ewan, who were also you know snowboarders, professional snowboarders. And I talked about it, and I was you know I didn't want to give up this lifestyle. You know, it it's kind of I want to live in the mountains for some... some. I couldn't imagine... You know, it's a big step. You know, you see footballers retiring and, and they have a shocker because yeah. they're, they're running out in front of 60,000 people that high, that incredible high, and then suddenly you've got to face normality. It's got to be incredibly difficult. And I think I spent a lot of time thinking, you know, about how much enjoyment I get out of the mountains and what it would mean to just stop that and get an office job. You know, that was my motivation by, behind turning down, you know, the DC European sports marketing management job. I mean, that most people would go, oh, that's, a, that's an amazing job to get. Yeah, but I, couldn't, I can't see you doing that. Though. Well, no, neither could I. I knew that I couldn't yeah, do it. Yeah, that'd be, I imagine that was just instinctive for you, wasn't it? It, just like... it was, but it's easy not to be instinctive because you think that's the best thing to do at the time. Yeah. But um, well, that's that social pressure that, you, that we talked about earlier again, isn't it? Yeah. Especially when you've got a family and you're at the point in your life that you were. Yeah. Probably like would have been an easier decision in a lot of ways, wouldn't it? Absolutely. To, to take it. Yeah, it would be like security, um, providing for the family. Um, but I knew that I'd be incredibly unhappy doing that. Uh, I think being a professional athlete, I mean, it's a thing that a lot of people I don't think think about. But it's one of the shortest careers that you're ever going to have. And I think there's not really enough, it's not talked about enough, you know, f any, any sport, how difficult it is to make that transition from, you know, traveling the world, getting paid to do something you love. It, it's the best period of your life. And transitioning from that is the hardest thing you're ever going to do. And there's a lot of fallout. There's a lot of depression, drinking, drugs. You know, you look at footballers. I mean, they're earning ridiculous money the adulation 60,000 people 80,000 people shouting their name how yeah. do you transition from that to normal life and I don't think there's really enough well it's not talked about enough and there's not enough support because which is crazy really especially in an industry like that where you, there's so much wealth and so much yeah well, you could have a platform for a good post-career kind of care plan if you like couldn't yeah, you yeah well I, th I think a lot of companies are happy you know to milk it I'm not accusing anyone, but it, you know, when the, the going's good and the athletes at the top, give them whatever they want, and once they're done, they're done. But that's, I guess, that's our society in general. Well, isn't and they're, it? they're ruthless games, aren't they? Professional yeah. sport. It's business. It's yeah. business, and you answer to the shareholders. And, and once um, you stop, once you stop performing, yeah. And I, I, and I think I was one of the lucky ones with my transition, really, because I'm now still doing something that I love and getting incredible, you know, incredible satisfaction out of quite often showing people, hopefully, the best, type, you know, best day snowboarding. You know, yesterday, Rob, one of our group, went, those are the best runs I've ever had. Yeah, he and, was, that, that was nice, actually. That yeah. was a really nice moment, wasn't it? He was proper stoked on that, wasn't he? And for someone to say that to you, that's job satisfaction right there. But I definitely had one of the easiest... Obviously, I've had, I won't, I'm not going to lie to you, I definitely had dark moments going from being a professional snowboarder to where I am now. I think that my early 40s were probably one of the most, along with the early 20s, one of the most challenging parts of my life. But they've definitely, you know. Just because of this transition then, or? Yeah, because of the transition, um, having a family, I, I lost my, all my, I lost my Quicksilver contract and DC um, contract six months before. Uh, Zeph was due to be born. Right. So, you know, there that, you go. that's that a measure was, of the, the... Yeah, here we go. About to have a child yeah. and you're unemployed. Um, so, yeah, it was incredibly hard transition. But, you know, like anything, if you can come through it stronger, um, yeah, you're, you're, you're better for it. But, yeah, it was incredibly tough. And I definitely had dark moments there where, you know, I questioned a lot of things. Is this what you see yourself doing then for the foreseeable? Absolutely. I love being outdoors and in nature. 
uh, and I think because you do it in the summer as well, right? You do yeah, some, you do yeah, some guided I, in Devon, don't you? Yeah, and, I do kind of adventure sports in the summer. Yeah, um, and I see that developing a little bit more so that I can have more of a balance with family time in the summer and the winter. Maybe do a bit less in the winter and a bit more in the summer. But uh, you know, I I know myself that I'm happiest when I'm outdoors in nature and I think you know it's something you take for granted 25 years of snowboarding you take for granted that knowledge that you've gained and suddenly when you see someone snowboarding and you can impart a bit of knowledge or tell them no don't stand there because look what's above you come over you know you suddenly you realize that actually you've you've gained incredible amount of knowledge which you can used to show people a good time and uh, I think there's a famous Einstein quote about uh, I, I won't get it right but some, some, you know, something about um, immerse yourself in nature the, the world will make much more sense I definitely live, live by that you know. You should work that on your Instagram yeah I should do, <laughs> a little bit corny but it, you know the world is so complicated these days and you know with everything that's going on you can shut yourself off in the mountains and, and really, you know, have, take a deep breath and uh, yeah. everything makes much more sense. And yeah. I don't, if I stop doing that and doing another job, I don't think I'd be as happy. Yeah. Do you, um, do you ever think or wish you'd concentrated on surfing or skateboarding more than snowboarding? Or was snowboarding, did that always have precedence? Um, I don't think I consciously concentrated or one on the one or the other i think that i was fortunate to get into snowboarding it was right time right place um when it was developing and i had much better opportunities and i do feel like i'm a better snowboarder you know than i am a surfer or, or a skateboarder but that's kind of nice because when i go surfing i still feel like i'm i'm really learning and progressing and yeah skateboarding i'm just about trying to maintain where i'm at yeah, well, that's, you know, if you're still going at any level. But I, I love it. Skate, I think, I think if, I, if I was asked which, which sport do I owe the most to, it would be skateboarding. Um, the culture, the friends, the attitude, you know, the, the community. I think if I was asked what I'm proudest of, it's being a skateboarder. It's given me the most in my life. Really, that's what you would identify yourself as? Yeah, you... I think I'd identify myself as, as a skateboarder first and foremost. You know, I meet friends now who are in their 50s. Um, uh, I hang out at the skate park with 12-year-olds and you've just got this common bond. It just breaks down all barriers and suddenly you're a kid again. And, um, you know, I watch skate videos on Instagram. Most of, my, most of the stuff I follow is probably skateboarding. And, um, yeah, it's, I, just, I just think it's, it's, an incredible, it's an incredible subculture and sport because... It's so creative, you know, it, from, from, you know, design to fashion to, to every aspect of it. I think it's just incredible. And it, I feel, I, I don't want to say, it, it's another corny one, isn't it? Thank you, skateboarding. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I'm incredible. I feel incredibly lucky to have got into skateboarding at the age I did and to have the friends and... Yeah, it gives me a lot. Well, the brilliant thing about skateboarding is how the culture is still intact, despite how massive it is. Yeah. Because it is massive now, isn't it? Yeah. But everybody's so protective of it and helps keep it in check. And it is recognisably still the, still the same thing, isn't it, really? Well, I think it's, you know, it's a bit like snowboarding's going through quite, a, you know, a tough time or has done over the last few years. Snowboarding's I think, really struggled with that. Yeah, and, and I think any any sport where there's an easier alternative like skiing you know snowboarding is harder than skiing it's more hard work so you know most normal people are going to go oh, yeah, i'll go skiing because it's easier um but I, I love that that's why i love the sport because it goes into decline and then it thrives for a bit again that's what makes it special not everyone you know skateboarding is tough it really fucking hurts yeah, fucking you know harsh. i have a, <laughs> when i have a slam at the skate park now you know sometimes i get up and go oh god i can't take any more of these but that's what makes it so special it's not it, it takes a certain kind of person it's not it's not open for everyone you know no. it's not an easy option it's a tough option if you you know you've got to take you've got to take pain and you've got to take hurt if you're going to skate and frustration and frustration because of just how hard it is yeah and that's what I love about it it takes a certain kind of character and I guess yeah 
If you go to a skate park, most skate parks, you know, you turn up with a bunch of, I don't know, 18, 20-year-old kids, 16, 12, everyone's in the same boat. It, it's, yeah, it's, a skate park, I think, is an incredible environment for kids to really learn about socialising and, you know, about where they fit in. I, th I think skate parks are the healthiest place for kids to hang out. Well, apart from maybe smoking weed. And yeah, drinking. apart from that. <laughs> yeah, so, so with your perspective on snowboarding, and I don't really mean like the industry, like, but question I've asked a few people is, what do you think of the state of snowboarding right now? But I, I'm more interested in your perspective because you, you, you know, you see a lot of different snowboarders. And you probably, you know, the, the industry, there's a lot of like, yeah, the new shapes, it's really transforming snowboarding. Do you see that kind of line filtering down to the people that are booking your courses? Yeah, I think definitely snowboard shapes, um, you know. People... This perceived like healthy state of snowboarding, though, is that, do, do you kind of, well, do you I see it in the people that you're riding with every day? I, I see the, the people I ride with, how not maybe not upset how obsessed they are with snowboarding and how into it they are you know i've got clients that you know they just absolutely live and breathe snowboarding um but yeah snowboarding is middle-aged now yeah that's what i see is yeah. that there's a massive amount of dads 40 somethings late 30 40 50 like our group 60 somethings who have always snowboarded um and i mean to me I see snowboarding as healthy. I'm, I, I'm much more likely to watch videos now. I love the way the kids, the way the kids are snowboarding. I much prefer, you know, the stuff that they're doing now to say 10, 15 years ago. I think snowboarding is just way more diverse. I was about to say that. That's what I, and, and I think it's healthier for it. And I, and, and I, don't, I wouldn't write anyone who snowboards off. That, you know, that's what I love about snowboarding. You can do it any way you want. There's, it's not skiing. There's no, this is the best way. Bend your knees. <laughs> Tuck your knee in. You know, have the biggest stance you want. Have the narrowest stance you want. Do what the fuck you want. That is what is great about snowboarding. Yeah. And I think it's showing that at the moment with the diversity of, of video clips you see on social media. You know? you know, you see people doing crazy stuff over knuckles. You see people doing quadruple corks. It's in the Olympics. Well, like Starla's it, it, backside three to tail yeah drag or whatever yeah. the, whatever that was but that you know that really simple idea yeah people, amazingly well executed and people have been so creative and you know it's constant everyone's constantly inventing new shit which yeah. is amazing yeah and skiers are just trying to copy us well <laughs> <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let that one linger yeah i'll let that one linger in the air um well we're kind of yeah I've got to get my transfer soon, yeah. so we should probably start wrapping it up. So I guess a couple of questions that I always ask people. Um, do you have any regrets? Um, no, I don't have any regrets because I think the stuff you do wrong in your life will generally teach you a bloody good lesson. I think your failures um, make you the person that you are. Uh, so no, I don't really have any regrets. Of course, I've made massive mistakes. Of course, I sometimes think I wish I'd done that. But I think you become the person you are by fucking up a lot. Yeah, and being able to sort of take the positives. Presumably. Yeah, exactly. By taking is that something you've always been able to do? Uh, probably not, but I definitely do now. Uh, but I think I've always, you know, character-wise, I've always been a person who's looked on the positive side. Um, and I know. I remember. I, Basically, when I started my business, I bought a van for four grand and I sold my other van for just over a grand. I had a, a thousand pounds in cash in my pocket. I cycled down to pay the last grand off uh, and I went, I stopped off at a mate's house to pick up some money for a jacket on the way. And I dropped a thousand pounds out of my pocket, basically, just what? before Christmas. Christ. Uh, just when I was starting a business, just when I had a six month old baby. <laughs> you didn't find it? Uh, no, I didn't find it. Oh, man. And the amazing thing was that everyone else was more bummed for me than I was. I was like, that's ah, just paper. I'll just work a few extra days during the winter. And that's what you genuinely felt. You, yeah, you it's what you I genuinely were, felt. It, you were genuinely able to just you know I, 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 show, show that all, level of equanimity to that just like that was all it was almost like a moment of euphoria right it was like you know money is irrelevant that that's kind of because everyone rallied behind me and everyone was like had all this goodwill 
And she didn't just, start a Kickstarter or anything. No, no, no it was just this bag of paper. <laughs> Go fund me. No, I just thought this is a bag of paper. Obviously, I'm lucky enough to be. I'm not destitute. Yeah, know? I wasn't destitute. It'd be a different, different scenario. Yeah, but that 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 this bundle of paper meant nothing to me compared to my friendships and you know what I had. And it was yeah, it was a real. It was actually a real genuine moment of of kind kind of. This is this just doesn't matter. That's a good test of your uh, your, your your real principles as well. Like, you know, if you can actually like look at it in that way, then fair but everyone play. constantly says money doesn't make you happy, and it's absolutely true. Yeah, well, like you say, look at the footballers, look at the well, retired yeah. footballers. Well, look at look at businessmen, billionaires who are you know they're trying to do everything they can, shagging prostitutes, snorting coke off prostitutes, us to to get some kind of feeling in their life. Yeah. And, uh, once you're chasing money, you're constantly chasing it. Um, my best times in my life have been the most simple times. You know, living in a van in the forest in Hossigore with 50 quid, that, you know, having 50 quid to spend a week. You know, those, those bonds with other people when you haven't got much, you know, that, that kind of friendship and helping each other out, that is what, for me, makes, makes me happy. Well, that's a good point, James. <laughs> to uh to wrap it up on another instagram slogan um nice one well i'll try not to lose this one <laughs> yeah um but yeah thanks for coming on man thanks for interviewing me yeah. i feel honored awesome blessed hashtag blessed, hashtag blessed. <laughs> so there you go that was my chat with james and yeah proper monkey off the back that one had such a great time snowboarding with james during those three days and i do hugely recommend doing one of his uh, stanford snowboarding courses if you're looking to ride some great snow and get some of that silverback perspective on your snowboarding, I think I'm pretty much already eyeing Iceland for another mission with James. But yeah, thanks for coming on the show, James. Thanks for being so patient about doing it for a second time and hopefully I will see you soon. So yeah, there you go. That was episode 32. By the time this one hits the virtual bricks, I will be in Munich for the annual ISPO show. For the uninitiated ISPO is the European Action Sports community's biggest expo and see some of the industry's main players heading to uh, Bavaria for three days of meetings, schnitzel, vice beer and hangovers. I've been going there for about 20 years. I'll be there again for my day job. But yeah, I'll also be packing the old podcast gear and I'm hoping to speak to some of the great and good of the European scene. I'm definitely going to catch up with the elusive David Benedict to find out what he's been up to very requested guest benedict and um i've got a few other irons in the fire as well so yeah keep them peeled drop me a line through one of my uh, many avenues of digital communication to let me know who you'd like me to speak to while i'm at the show so yeah that's it now thanks for listening and downloading as usual see you next time hope everyone's enjoying the uh the podcast so far i mean i'm doing my best to balance the stories really you know for every every big name. You know, I've got the I've got the Tim Layton boy stories and I've got the the Orlando and the Sasha stories that that are really striking a chord with people despite the lack of profile that those people might not enjoy compared to some of the other guests, but yeah, ultimately I'm just trying to tell interesting stories and strike a balance really. And and, and the filter is really does it interest me. So, hopefully that uh, seems to be working so far and hopefully it'll continue to work into the future because, yeah, as regular listeners will know, we've got a big old list of people to keep ticking off. So, yeah. Um, anyway, I hope you enjoyed this one and uh, I'll see you next time. Nice one. <laughs>